Welcome to Webinecki Windows. I'm your host, Donna Loring. Webinecki Windows is a monthly show featuring Webinecki perspectives, topics, and opinions, as well as interviews with Native artists, writers, and people of interest. Today, we have uh, uh, two guests with us. Uh, the first one is the uh, police chief from the Penobscot Nation, Chief Bob Bryant. Welcome, Bob. Uh, good morning. And uh, the second one is a very special guest, uh, Professor David Gilborn from the University of Birmingham in the UK. Uh, good morning, David. Hi. Uh, I'm going to just ask that, uh, first of all, Bob, uh, just say something about yourself and don't take up too much time, Bob. I know. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, then, and then, David, you, you do the same. And, and then I'll, I'll follow up. So go ahead, Bob. Okay. Uh, I'm, again, Bob Bryant. I am the police chief for the Penobscot Nation uh, on Indian Island. Uh, I live on the reservation with my family, uh, and I've been the police chief now for going into my uh, ninth year and going uh, law enforcement now for going into my 29th year. So I've been fortunate enough to not only have a uh, sort of a longevity f as a police chief, uh, but also in the career of law enforcement itself. So, okay, David. Well, my name is Dave Gilborn. I'm professor of critical race studies at the University of Birmingham in England. Um, I've been working on racism and race inequality in education for about thirty years. Uh, I've worked closely with a variety of scholars uh, in Europe and in North America. Okay. Um, I'm just going to follow up on that, David. Uh, you are a, because I did a little background check on you, of course, on the internet. <laughs> uh, so, uh, David, uh, I'll just tell our listeners uh, a little bit about your background that uh, David uh, Gilborn is a professor at the University of uh, uh, Birmingham in the United Kingdom. Uh, <coughs> he's a uh, critical race studies uh, uh, researcher, editor-in-chief of the Journal of Race, Ethnicity, and Education, and director of the Center for Research in Race and Education. Uh, David's research focuses on race inequalities in education, especially the role of racism as a changing and complex characteristic of the system. He has written six books and more than 140 refereed articles, chapters, and reports that range from original studies in classrooms and with teachers through national reviews of research evidence in the field. Uh, you've, uh, he, he, uh, he received an award uh, the Derek Bell Legacy Award in two 2012. It's the highest honor possible from the U.S.-based Critical Race Studies in Education Association. So I just wanted to let people know that uh, you are an expert in the area of racism, race. Uh, so uh, let me just open our discussion today by saying the reason that I wanted to do the show on on race and racism uh, has to do with uh, some things that have been uh, have come to the the fore here from Augusta uh, 
the state house and whatever, some things that have been happening. And uh, I've heard the word used quite a bit. And uh, people that have been using the word, it just seems to me that uh, they really don't understand what that word really means. A lot of them feel, uh, or the let's say 99.9% of people, uh, feel that racism is about the violence and uh, the, the violent acts uh, that uh, of the South. So, um, David, if you could just uh, talk to us a little bit about uh, the meaning of racism or race, racism. Sure. Um, I think it, to many white people, when they hear the word racism, um, the kind of crude, violent acts of race hatred um, are the first things that spring to mind. Um, and really, for most white people, that's where their understanding of racism ends. So they think of things like um, um, racially motivated attacks, um, uh, property being destroyed, people being murdered. But in fact, racism um, saturates the whole of society. It works through the kind of taking for granted assumptions that people in power hold about many different groups. Um, so it, it, it really works through the very mundane, taken-for-granted assumptions that shape things like hiring decisions, who gets promoted, um, who gets a pay rise, uh, who gets stopped on the street by the police, um, who gets pulled over. Um, uh, it, it really runs through every aspect of society. Um, one of the key problems is that when you begin to identify just how complex and in many ways taken for granted racism um, really is, then you start to get a lot of pushback. Um, white people in particular are not used to thinking about racism in those terms. Uh, and very often they start to feel insecure uh, and they can feel under attack and then um, the racism starts to take different forms. So at the moment, uh, I think on both sides of the Atlantic, there's a strong movement with people really trying to argue that anybody who uses um, understandings about different racial groups must themselves therefore be a racist, um, trying to argue for what they often call a colorblind approach. Now, what a colorblind approach does is that it actually... Um, means that you're not allowed to talk about racism. You're not allowed to talk about how um, historical acts of genocide and systematic inequality still pattern people's opportunities today. So I think um, the argument that colorblindness is the way to go is, is, is a very convenient one that actually masks um, the significance of racism in, in everybody's lives. You know, here uh, in, in Maine, I, I've noticed, because uh, I spent some time in the legislature, and a lot of times uh, when the tribes would uh, put a bill forward or whatever, the response would be, well, you know, you're, uh, you're wanting something special. We, we want to treat you just like we treat everybody else. Uh, so uh, to me, when you mention the colorblind uh, approach, that sort of, what comes to my mind is the response that, you know, you're just like everybody else. Right. And the, 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 one of the most cruel tricks that's played through that kind of 
um, thinking um, is where people say, well, look, why don't we, we'll just, we'll hire on merit. Uh, and of course, that sounds fabulous. That, that, what, who could possibly object to hiring uh, people on merit? But then you have to say, well, how are we going to judge merit? Who gets to set the standard? And who gets to decide when we will or won't suspend those standards? So if, for example, um, you're looking at who gets access to a university course, well, um, simply setting a, a, a single um, cut-off rate for qualifications for who gets in, that would be fine if everyone um, who's applying went to the same school, had the same kind of... Um, uh, support at home, had the same access to the internet and to libraries and to books, had the same encouragement, the same resourcing in their schools, and we know that that simply isn't the case. Um, so, you know, to say to people, well, we're just going to be colorblind and we're going to treat everyone the same, is a really convenient way of saying we actually quite like the system as it is now. Because to pretend that the system um, is currently fair is the only way you can justify that kind of colorblind approach. Um, and if you behave as if there are no existing inequalities, what you will do is automatically recreate those inequalities. But you will do it through processes that you claim to be fair and colorblind. So the white folks that continually dominate um, uh, access to the elite universities and the elite jobs feel really pleased with themselves because they're sure that they're there on merit rather than because of an accident of birth. So that sort of uh, colorblind approach, um, that, uh, do you see a lot of that sort of, now, I guess what I'm sort of thinking of is different kind of categories in racism. Mm. Uh, for instance, uh, now, in, is there such a thing as institutional racism? Yeah, um, institutional racism um, is, is a phrase that um, gets used um, quite a lot over here because it was highlighted in a, a major report that had um, implications for the whole legal structures around um, dealing with race inequality um, through the law, education, health, very briefly, there was a moment where the idea of institutional racism um, was begun to take seriously by policymakers. And what was meant by the phrase institutional racism was the ways in which um, assumptions that disadvantage minority ethnic groups are, are kind of taken for granted within institutions, whether it's the police force, um, whether it's um, in hospitals, in schools, uh, universities. And institutional racism is, is the kind of racism that I described at the beginning, the, the taken-for-granted, mundane, unremarkable things. Um, 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 a, a scholar um, in the U.S., Richard Delgado, has, has referred to it as business-as-usual racism. So for most white folk, it, it, it doesn't look like racism. It's just how we've always done things. And it's, it's kind of written through the DNA of institutions. Um, and that's, in many respects, the hardest racism to counter because it's not obvious. Um, it doesn't stand out, but its, it's consequences um, for people of colour can be um, 
just as dramatic, just as deadly as, as the cruder forms of racism. Um, but because it's much more subtle, um, it's harder to identify it on a day-to-day basis. Yeah, and I want to just, th- th- you know, that's one of the reasons I brought uh, uh, Chief uh, Bryant here, because, you know, there's, we have a situation here uh, in Maine where uh, there's a, a police academy uh, that trains all of the uh, police officers in the state. And um, tribal police officers uh, are required by the uh, treaty, Maine Indian Land Claim Settlement Act, to go through the Criminal Justice Academy. Well, the academy has no uh, tribal members seated on its, on its board. So we've been trying to get a seat on that board now for two or three years by going through the legislative process. And every time we do that, we get turned down. So, and, and right now the, uh, the board uh, is made up of all uh, white people on the board. There are no people of color on that board. Uh, and, and yet uh, we haven't been able to get through there and, and Bob, I just want to have Bob speak to that for a minute or so. One of the issues that we've been trying to address is getting a tribal representative on the Maine Criminal Justice Academy's uh, executive board, uh, which is comprised of uh, law enforcement, civilians, and uh, other interested parties uh, to deal with the issue of law enforcement for the state that sit in past policy training standards and and other aspects that deal with the the training of police officers. And we haven't been successful in trying to get that through the main legislature uh, through a couple of bills that uh, we've proposed the last several years. Um, And Donna talked about the institutionalized racism that occurs uh, in, in places, you know, across the country. And, you know, looking at that issue, uh, you know, I am a white man uh, that lives on an Indian reservation. My family, uh, tribal, my wife is a tribal member, my children are tribal members. Uh, so when I look at the issue, and i got to go back to what you stated earlier in that when white people do hear the word racism. I think it's a it's a natural tendency uh, 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 for most folks to get defensive uh, because I think it is a clear misunderstanding of what uh, the word racism actually means um, and how it's uh, applied and how it's interpreted. Uh, I look at uh, the issue of race across the state of Maine, and I look at it how it has a been. Uh, I think how it's really affected and molded the officers that have come out of that have come out of the Criminal Justice Academy. And bef- you know, yeah, before you finish, uh, Bob, uh, uh, David, we're looking at sort of the what we th- we're thinking is a I don't know colorblind sort of institutional kind of thing. I just wanted yeah. you to say what you thought of a situation like that in law enforcement where it's all white, the, the, the board and whatever. Well, unfortunately, it's, um, 
a, a situation that, that, that sounds depressingly familiar, um, uh, trying to address institutional racism in the UK, um, the police force has been um, really at the centre of the debate. Um, it was failings in police investigations, police process, that really led to the focus on institutional racism around um, 1999 and 2000. And very, for a very brief time, there was some movement on it. There was uh, movement to have um, better community representation and to really improve the training of police officers and, and the diversity of police officers. Uh, unfortunately, that was very short-lived. And it, it sounds like some of the same arguments that you're facing there are the ones that were rehearsed here. So often um, the people defending the status quo will accuse accusers of wanting special treatment. Whereas, in fact, of course, what we're actually after is, is justice. We're after... Um, a more equitable situation than the one we have. And so defending the status quo is, is merely defending um, the vested interests and the, um, the unequal representation of um, white folks um, in positions of authority. Now, unfortunately, trying to get traction in um, the police is, is one of the most um, difficult areas because um, very often... These arguments about um, special treatment um, um, carry a lot of weight because people, quite rightly, are, are, are worried of, of any kind of tampering with the police service. The problem is that the police service is often um, one of the institutions that's most in need of reform. And so um, I think one of the most urgent tasks is to actually improve the representation of different community groups right throughout the policing structure um, so that different voices can be heard and so that some of those um, taken-for-granted assumptions that, that actually promote injustice, some of those assumptions can be um, tackled uh, more forcefully, um, whether it's getting um, better tribal representation in Maine or better representation for black and British groups um, in the London Police Service. Uh, unfortunately, um, it seems to be one of those um, situations where, despite having an ocean between the UK and the US, um, the problems seem to be remarkably similar. Yeah. Do you have any comment on that, Bob? Or? Well, I, I, I agree. I think that uh, when I look at uh, the issue of reform in, in law enforcement, you, especially here, uh, when you look at, you know, I've been, you know, my entire career has been law enforcement here in Maine. Uh, you know, most of it has been on the tribal reservation, but, you know, I was fortunate enough to work, you know, 13 years in, in a uh, municipality. But I look at, and what, what I, I look at, for police and, and for myself, I try to simplify it and, and look at how do how do we correct it in in people when we talk about all the racism uh, and folks immediately get their their back up against the wall and, and don't call me a racist because I'm not a racist and in fact I think I look at it and as I said a minute ago it, the three E's education exposure and empathy 
is that folks aren't educated in the areas of different cultures and in, in different races. Yeah, and, and you know, I, I think a lot of times police training lacks that uh, and probably and could use, could really use some infusion there. And I imagine it's the same in, in the UK, right, David? Yeah, I think that's a really important point. Um, I was meeting last week with um, the head of a group of um, charities that are trying to work on uh, improving race equality right across the uh, criminal justice system in the UK. And one of the points that they were making is that actually white police officers um, really do know that they need help on this. They are aware of it. Um, They feel exposed. Um, when these issues come up, um, they would like to know how better um, to deal with different communities. But because of the um, the kind of subculture that exists in a lot of um, parts of the police, there's this notion that you mustn't show weakness. You mustn't ask for help. Um, you have to always pretend to be in control to know what you're doing. So actually, once um, you start to offer um, better education, better support, um, greater diversity amongst the officers. Quite often there's a sense of relief amongst um, white officers. Obviously there are some who will um, view it as the end of the world, it's lowering standards, and unfortunately those people exist in all walks of life, and if we're going to improve things, they need to move on. They need to either um, change their attitudes or get out, because they're not fit to be um, policing our communities. But, but um, the expert on the criminal justice system was telling me last week that, that, that actually he's constantly surprised by um, the willingness of white police officers once this stuff is, um, is made available to actually acknowledge that they do need it. And they know that they need it, but at the moment they're, they're, they don't know where to go to get the help and they're, um, they're afraid to show any sign of weakness when it comes to these kinds of issues, which, of course, can be a, a, a recipe for disaster. Right, as we've seen here in this country recently. I like to, Absolutely. I like, I like to ask David's opinion on, uh, on the other uh, topic that I think relates to racism, and that is the issue of exposure. And what I mean by that is, you know, I live in a predominantly white state, um, and so I was fortunate enough to be able to travel by going into the service and getting exposure to, to other cultures and, and other races, whereas a lot of my counterparts lived their entire life here in Maine, uh, so their exposure to other cultures, other races, is very, very limited, and all they see it, uh, th- their exposure is limited to what they see in the media and what yeah. the media portrays other races and, and cultures uh, to be. And so I think lacking that, and t- that also uh, has to, to create a problem if, if you don't have that exposure to other races and other, to other cultures. I, I couldn't agree more. Um, the, uh, the, the best conditions to breed fear and ignorance um, is keeping people segregated. Um, I mean, one of the, um, the things that happens very quickly when you start to break down those barriers is that people realize 
that a lot of the kind of unspoken fears just just don't make sense. Um, so um, I think there's there's a, there's a lot of work to be done um, in that way. But but there is um, also a kind of um, hidden downside to this that the more we um, we look to diversify um, the police force, we can't assume that um, the positive effects will happen automatically um, and that there won't be costs um, for the officers from um, tribal backgrounds or from uh, black and minority ethnic backgrounds. Uh, in the UK, one of the things that was tried was there was this assumption, well, if we just have more black police officers, the white officers will realise that they're, they're just the same, there are no issues, it'll cut down on the racism, uh, everything will be rosy. And what we find is that um, the black police officers are less likely to be promoted, they're more likely to be disciplined, um, they get the worst shift. Um, and so the racism that it was assumed the black officers would help to, um, to work against, that racism works on those officers, it, it blights their careers, they're much more likely to be disciplined, they're much more likely to leave. So um, I think that idea of ex exposure is, is a really important one, but, but it has to be done um, in a planned way and in a way which recognises how exposed um, the tribal officers would be, because um, they would need particular support. and. Sometimes these things are, are, are very simple. Um, although racism is complicated, one of the easiest ways of beginning to identify where, where there's a problem is just simple counting. Just count the likelihood of um, different officers getting promoted, getting disciplined, um, moving through the ranks, leaving. Um, when you do simple head counts like that, you can very quickly begin to identify where the problems lie. Um, and the secret to success then is to address those issues honestly, to not simply say, well, it must be that tribal officers aren't trained properly, um, they don't work hard enough, because those are the stereotypical, those are the, the racist explanations. You have to look at the system, the institution. How is it treating different officers? Uh, what kinds of expectations are being placed upon them? Um, and... and when you start to focus on the, um, the kinds of treatment and the institutional patterns, that can be a way of allowing uh, white people inside the debate without them necessarily feeling kind of targeted, because they can begin to explore how it might be that, um, although they're absolutely certain that they're not racist, that they treat everyone the same, how is it? that the outcomes of these processes keep remaking the same patterns year after year. Um, and when we start to have those debates, we can begin to change the ways in which people operate uh, and hopefully begin to um, make some of the outcomes uh, more equitable. Yeah, well, I think the, a lot of times they don't understand that uh, what the impact really is. And once they do understand the impact, it's not the policy or the policymakers uh, fault. It has to do with those people that are being impacted. It's their fault. They're doing something wrong. Yes, I mean the one one of the um, the, the things that that always um, hits me between the eyes, whether I'm looking at education policy, economic policy, um, policing policy, 
the tendency is always to blame the victim. So um, why is it that certain groups are more likely to be unemployed? Well, the dominant explanation will look for a problem with the victim. Um, well, they don't work hard enough. They don't apply for enough jobs. Um, perhaps they're applying for the wrong jobs. It, it's always so much easier for the system uh, to defend itself by, by blaming uh, the person that's already getting the wrong end of the stick. Um, and that's the key cultural difference that needs to change. The people in power need to recognize um, that they, they do have it within their gift to change these things, that it simply um, isn't good enough to resort to the easy answers, to the stereotypical explanations. Um, and they really need to hold themselves to account when it comes to uh, these kinds of arguments, whether they can um, credibly claim to have done things to change the system um, rather than simply um, kind of making a rhetorical commitment that, that actually doesn't change anything on a day-to-day -day basis. How, how would, the, with that in mind, David, and something that uh, you alluded to earlier, and that is, I think when we look at the issue of race, uh, obviously, if, you, if folks know anything about it, the opportunities are limited for certain uh, people of color in the in this country, um, uh, both you know financially and you know education educationally. How would we go about trying to instill some sense of empathy in the mindset of law enforcement uh, when we're when training them or trying to uh, create an officer that, that's able to apply that to the job so that uh, I think that's important to be able to, to look at individuals at times, you know, both victims and even uh, folks that commit crimes to say, you know, you know, what has put them in that position and not to broad brush everybody that, you know, possibly has committed a crime uh, and to be able to apply that empathy so you have an understanding what may have gotten them to the place that they were at. Mm. I, well, I think there are, there, there are really two aspects to that. One is um, the kind of wider awareness of the, uh, the situation that you described, the fact that um, things that some communities take for granted in terms of the kind of resourcing that they would um, accept as a bare minimum in their schools um, may be way beyond the average resourcing um, for the schools that, that, that other communities get access to. Um, so that's, that's a part of it. But I think more than empathy, what, what people in um, those kinds of uh, communities that are on the rough end of um, these kinds of education and policing decisions, what they want is professionalism. Um, so I work with a lot of um, black community groups in the UK um, trying to improve educational standards for their kids. And they don't ever ask for any special treatment. Um, they don't even um, ask that teachers necessarily like them. What they ask for is a professional teacher. They ask for a teacher who doesn't lead to assumptions, who um, gives their best for each student in the class, um, and works on the evidence in front of them. 
uh, and I think um, you know the work that I've I've, I've started doing with uh, people in the UK around race and the criminal justice system, the same kind of expectations are there. Nobody is asking for a free ride or for um, uh, a kind of different set of expectations. What they're asking for is a professional police service which doesn't simply operate on the basis of um, lazy stereotypes, um, uninformed um, assumptions about particular kinds of community. Um, and if we can actually begin to, to, to raise that standard of professionalism and real knowledge about these kinds of things, I think that could, that could really make an impact. So, you know, when, when you think about that, uh, a lot has to do with, with police, uh, I'm going to say role models or whatever, because, um, you know, in our society, when we think of police officers, we think of, uh, you know, people, at least in my, in my time, a few <laughs> a number of years ago, you know, police officers uh, were, could do just about anything. And they, you know, they were the macho kind of guys and whatever, and and they sort of look at themselves like that too, uh, and and uh, they that plays off, uh, they play off each other with that. So, you know, how does that, how do you change that sort of culture? Uh, you know, I, well, I, I think, yeah, yeah. I mean that that's. That's that's the key question. The um, the training courses that I'm aware of that, that were most successful in the UK were that were the ones that focused on um, really the the fact that that kind of macho um, uh, kind of died in the wall. Um, this is how we've always done it. That kind of approach. That approach is actually incredibly dangerous for the officers themselves. They may feel secure in that this is how we've always done it, brothers in arms, um, this is what we do. Um, but actually, they're exposed. Um, um, there is a lot of videotaping equipment. Um, we live in a society where people have much more access um, to, to legal counsel, uh, albeit often through um, voluntary pro bono work. Um, and they know they're exposed. So I think if the, 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 the chink in the armor of that kind of macho um, approach is the fact that they know that they're, um, they're, they're walking a tightrope, um, that actually they can do a better job, they can be more secure um, if they begin to um, understand um, and behave much more professionally around all the people that they deal with in their work that um, they won't need the bluster, they won't need um, the macho um, kind of wall of silence because they will know that they're actually behaving professionally and that they are truly serving and protecting um, all the different communities. Well, I, one, of the, one of the issues that... Uh, uh, so the creation, I think, since this whole 9-11 incident uh, really took law enforcement in a different direction in my mind in that we had the government 
telling police departments across the country, you are now the front line, first line defense on terrorism. So I think what happened is it created a paradigm in that they started uh, not only giving law enforcement agencies or police agencies, which is supposed to be service-minded, all this surplus military equipment, which I think shifted that whole mindset towards thinking, you know, we are the military also. So uh, I think right down from not only the equipment but to the, the to the look of some of the younger officers that, I'm, that I've seen uh, across the country now uh, to the approach to the job and that it shifted more to of a uh, occupying force rather than a service-minded uh, uh, agency to the to the citizens that they, they were there to serve. So I think that looking at that macho issue, it's gotten worse in the sense that uh, because of this whole terrorism and, and this whole issue about, you know, you are now you know, the frontline military, I think, has created a serious problem. I think that's absolutely right. I mean, if you look at the um, the news footage that came out of Ferguson, but also the official report into how um, the, the police department there were effectively um, using um, certain offences in order to tax particular parts of the community to keep the department running. I mean... You couldn't have invented that scenario. If you wrote a, uh, a novel set in some kind of dystopian future where the police department funds itself by disproportionately working against um, African-American people, you know, readers would tell you that that was crazy, it could never happen. Well, it's already happening. Um, and, and so I think you're right, the militarization of, of, of the police um, is... is hugely significant in terms of driving up barriers between communities um, and again in reinforcing all of those things which are wrong about uh, a kind of macho um, shoot first um, ask questions later approach and the you know the, the bad news um, from the UK is that that idea of, of people being on the front line has now spread not just through um, the police service but um, educators are being told that, that they have a first um, duty um, to be part of the surveillance, particularly of, of Muslim students. So elementary school teachers, high school teachers, college and university lecturers, we're told that it's our job to watch out for signs of radicalization. And what that means, of course, is that you, you take away the possibility of um, students uh, sharing their concerns with you because they think you might report um, things to the authorities, and it further alienates communities from from the very services that are supposed to be binding the society together. So, I think the the rhetoric and some of the political gains that are made out of the fears around the so-called war on terror is really sowing. Um, um, seeds for, for destruction right across society at the moment. So that, you know, that sort of, that, that tells me that there really needs to be more open communication and more contact and uh, more, yeah, I mean, just more talk back and forth on, on issues rather than uh, 
than gearing up and, and uh, acting like you're, uh, you know, in, in combat, uh, particularly with the police force here in this country. Um, what well, do you think, Bob? Absolutely, but, but you also need to, 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 to identify where some of the vested interests are in keeping things as they are or even making them worse. So I know that there are some states in the U.S. where um, collecting fines has, has been handed over to private companies, uh, and the private companies don't um, charge the state a fee. They inflate the fines that are um, payable uh, by um, the members of the community. So people um, that, that may have got a traffic ticket and then missed the date to pay because um, uh, they were waiting for their next paycheck suddenly find themselves um, owing the private firms thousands of dollars, and they can never get themselves out of debt. And those firms are making a fortune out of um, the current situation. And so whilst ever those firms can uh, lobby politicians and support people's campaigns, um, we, we, don't, we don't stand a very good chance of actually reforming the situation. So we've circled right back around to, to the to the legislature and to Augusta and the, the policymakers and and uh, all of those people who are the decision makers and who are um, I'd say ninety nine point nine percent not people of color. Um, well, and when when I think we've created also is we don't have the people themselves having a say on what they want their police agencies to be. I think that if you ask them, if you ask this question, uh, one is, you know, and I don't think it's far-fetched, you, would you want a tank rolling down your streets as part of so-called law enforcement? Would you get an answer of yes from most of your people? No, no, you wouldn't. Um, would you, if you ask them, do you think that you know all people should be included at the table? And I obviously we're not talking about every citizen sitting at the table, but a makeup of of all folks that live in that community or that state. I think majority of your people would say. Yes, I do. I think it should be a fair process. But when you have a closed group of people, again, getting back to that institution, that uh, don't allow that process to come into play or that voice, then I think we have to look at how do we change that? How do we, how do we break that through the walls of that? Because it's like a wall that can't be penetrated and we sit out here and we fight it and we fight it and we and we try to say this is wrong and and it's like we don't have the uh, the tools to crack that, those walls to get in and make that change and it's frustrating it's it's frustrating to the point that they say that it's a it's an inclusive process and it's not yeah and thus you get the Fergusons and that sort of uh, civil disobedience that really. Uh gets out of hand. And historically, if you actually look at the processes um, through which progress happens, 
it tends to happen when um, there's, there's, there's mass civil disobedience and or it hits the powers that be in the pocket. Exactly. When they start to think that actually they have a vested interest in making things less horrible, um, either because they're losing money through boycotts um, or um, that the, the, the current situation becomes unsustainable simply because the, um, the, the, the clear injustice um, can no longer be passed over. And I think that's where um, mass protests and, and boycotts become particularly effective um, historically, where where they've actually um, changed the status quo is where they simply made it um, either not profitable or not um, morally sustainable for um, the powers that be to to argue that everything is is uh, rosy. Yeah. So you know, you have I had a couple of of, of questions, and and I think you um, basically answered them. It's like you know why. Why should we change? I mean, that's what they're going to say uh, in in leadership roles. Why should we bring in other voices? And why should we share our total power that we have? Uh, what's in it for us? Uh, and unless we can figure that out that message, uh, I think it's gonna things are going to continue to be the same. Well, that's right. Um, I, I, I mean, I. I often work with, with different community groups, and a, a favorite saying of theirs is um, from Frederick Douglass, who was an escaped slave, um, who became a, a world-renowned abolitionist, and, and more than 100 years ago, he said, power concedes nothing without struggle. It never did, and it never will. Um, so, you know, it doesn't matter how eloquent our arguments are, um, we have to um, confront the status quo by making it unsustainable. And I think, um, you know, there, there are multiple lessons from history about um, how those things can be done. Um, unfortunately, you know, we live in a society where um, uh, they'll celebrate a Hollywood uh, movie about civil rights at the very same time that lots of states are rolling back um, <laughs> the civil rights legislation that, that's being celebrated on the screen. Hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So, uh, you know, I've heard, you know, the squeaky wheel, and and I, I think that's absolutely right. You know, if you, if you protest, if you cause a lot of noise and attention, um, unfortunately, I think that's the only way that things are going to move. Well, that, that's certainly the lesson from history, I think. Yeah. Well, I, I look at also at it as if uh, it's almost like the alcoholic that's in denial that they're an alcoholic until you get that first admission from them. I have a problem. It's the same as racism for, for the institutionalized issue of it is uh, they have to – when you ask them, do you do you believe this equality here? And if this continues, say, oh yeah, we're, we're, you know, we we got all voices here. And until that admission is that no, we don't, uh, then the racism is going to continue. It's going to exist. Yeah. yeah. And you know, it's going to take some loud voices to bring attention to that. Uh, so um, we have well, maybe a few more minutes left, and. Uh, 
I think what I want to do is, uh, is David, if, uh, actually what I'll do is, Bob, if you want to say some last things, if you, some last thoughts that you have. Well, my, my thoughts are this, and that is that I would hoped that before I do retire that we see changes in, in the profession that, I, that I've spent so much of my life in. And because it doesn't only affect uh, me, but it's going to affect the generations to come. And those generations of, of my family are made up of, of, of tribal people, and uh, it's made up of white people. And, you know, I, sometimes I wish we could go and implement that uh, sci-fi show uh, uh, Twilight Zone where that guy <laughs> went back in time and, and he was he was being hung from a tree. He was getting ready to be hanged from a tree. And he was trying to tell him, look, I'm not, I'm not a black man. I'm a white man. And they didn't. And it's almost like I wish that would happen with some of the folks <laughs> in this world that you could take them and put them in a place like that. But anyway, that's what I'm hoping, that that I do see the change before I'm done. And, and David, last words? Um, I, I think... If, if we learn anything from history, it's, it's that um, nobody, no, no oppressor ever gifts people um, an end to their oppression. Um, and there's no point in waiting around um, for the oppressor to change their mind. Um, I think the very first thing that people have to do is to ensure their own security and safety uh, and, and the health of themselves and their children. So... I think whilst ever we, we put pressure on the powers that be to move things forward in the directions we want, I think the, 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 the first responsibility is um, to really focus on what we can do um, for ourselves um, because um, we're, we're the people that are going to make the changes, um, not the folks sitting in uh, the Senate chamber or around the boardroom table because they're quite happy with things as it is. Right. Okay. Well, thank you, David, for joining us. I really thank appreciate you. your time. Uh, and, uh, okay. So with that, we'll, we'll end our show. Um, you've been listening to WERU, Webinacki Windows. I'm your host, Donna Lorig. We were talking with Professor David Gilborn from the University of Birmingham in the UK and also with the Penobscot Indian Nation Police Chief, Robert Bryant. I want to thank uh, I want to thank you for listening. Uh, I want to say that uh, the engineer of our show uh, is uh, Amy Brown. The music for our show is by Rolf Richter. Track called "Little Eagles" from the uh, the uh, the CD Dreamwalk. And tune in again next month for another Webinaki Windows. <laughs> <laughs>